church. If you have your Bible here this morning, if you would, take it, whatever you're using, Bible, device, uh, scroll, flip, whatever you've got to do, get to the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, continuing our study this morning on the topic of thinking matters and, and the mindset of joy and unity. As, and as we've been walking through the book, uh, we have uh, expressly, we've focused on this reality that we want unity and joy. There is this desire, I think, for every believer, if, if, if their heart is genuinely in the right place, that they don't want to be at odds with people. They want to be right with God. They want to be right with other people. And now we get into this very practical section. And as you come to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to be in, in verse 8 and 9, uh, I'm going to read it uh, here just in a moment. But I, but I think it just is so important for us to understand as we walk through this, how many, how many times have you perhaps said uh, you did something over a week or uh, some quick action you had and you use this statement, oh, I just wasn't thinking. I've used that. And I was like, is that even possible? See, the reality is, is you're always thinking. And it's not the fact that you weren't thinking when you did something that perhaps was foolish or a choice or a heart attitude. It was that you gave it some thought, whether it was quick or not, and you came out with a result, and yet there was thinking that was involved with it. It wasn't just a matter of being able to, do, to, be able to have some kind of behavior and just say, oh, that wasn't me. I wasn't thinking I was sick. I wasn't thinking I had a long day of work. We, we can't use excuses, and the Bible doesn't give us excuses, which is why uh, so much of the pages of Scripture and all of Christianity helps us realize that being a believer is a new way of thinking. It's not just a new way of behaving. It's a new way of behaving, by the way, because it's a new way of thinking. And what I want to focus on this morning is we get to a very practical uh, point in, in this particular book of Philippians is that your thinking produces your behavior. Your thinking is going to produce your behavior. In fact, your thinking even goes further. It even fuels your passions and your desires and those that, that intellect, your understanding, fuels your passions, your affections, and those two things fuel whatever comes out of you. This is very consistent with Old Testament thought. This is very consistent with Jesus's perspective that out of the heart comes forth all good things out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks but there is something to say about the importance of a disciplined mind if you show me a, a, a Christian who is disciplined in behavior I can I can likely show you if I were to be able to question them that there is a discipline of the mind that became the foundation of all of that behavior and so for us to somehow disregard the importance of why our thinking matters, and now we're going to connect it with a book and a context here of why it matters so much for the sake of joy and unity. Now let's read uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and then let's connect these two previous contexts. Verse number 8, he starts with this. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now notice how we're moving through this particular section of the scripture. I want you to just, I want you to just allow your eyes to gaze back for just a moment. Well, at the start of Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, we have a context and we have a problem. And the problem was disunity between two people. Here we have a congregation that was set on, uh, Paul wanted them to enjoy and experience the unity of the body of Christ because of the saving work of the Son. And yet there was a problem. They wouldn't come together. They struggled with that. And then last week we just talked about this reality of the choices that go along with this kind of desire for unity. He said, uh, it has to be a rejoicing kind of behavior, a, a reasonable kind of gentle, approachable person. Now notice what he does. He starts with a problem. 
he begins to identify behaviors that are consistent with bringing the peace of God in the midst of division, and now he backs up and goes just a little bit deeper and says, now, now I, just don't want to, I don't want to just tell you, be happy, be reasonable. He wants to say, let me tell you where all of those behaviors come from. It comes from a particular kind of Christian thinking that then produces a rejoicing spirit, a reasonable, gentle, approachable person. Someone who then, as we mentioned last week, experiences the very peace that passes all understanding. Now, many commentators, as they look at various portions uh, of, of this particular uh, section of Scripture, sometimes uh, they, they, they don't immediately connect it with the context of the division and the disunity. What I want you to do is take Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, the struggle with Yodi and Syntyche, and I want you to carry it with you all the way to the end of this section. Here's why. Because both sections deal with desiring the peace of God. And you have to ask yourself, when you're studying the Bible, in the midst of a disunifying uh, context, why would the peace of God be so alluring? Why would it be so something you desire to seek after and it's just prized beyond all things and incomprehensible? Why? Because when you go through disunity and there is a lack of peace, there is something in your soul between a brother and a sister in Christ or a sister and sister or a, or a family member that you just long to have the peace that surpasses all understanding. He says the very same thing, and he retains that idea of peace in our context this morning. So I don't want you to think that all of a sudden, some, somehow, that the Apostle Paul disjoints this idea of disunity and then jumps into a final conclusion and says, okay, we're not talking about disunity anymore. He's saying these practices will bring the peace of God and these practices of discipline of the mind will also fuel the practices that will bring the peace of God. And that's so important for us not to divorce this context because just as we lay out these statements, these lists of virtues, I want to just, I, I would just encourage you to think this way. When is a, one of the most difficult times to have truthful thoughts, uh, honorable, just, pure? Isn't it when you have a problem with someone? Like you look at them and you don't want to think truthful things. They're out to get me. I know it. You know what? They meant this. I think that's why they said what they said. Or they text me and they put this all in capital letters. I think they're trying to say something to me. We jump to conclusions. We read posts in social media without ever considering the truthfulness or the purity of our own mind in the midst of a conflicting situation. These disciplines of the mind, while it is larger in application than just the immediate context, Paul is saying, I want you to have unity, but it has to start with the work of the mind. And the work of the mind says that we're going to look and we're going to treat one another in the way that Christ treated us. So as we think about these things this morning, uh, I want to focus on this main idea, that thinking biblically, then, is the foundation from which inner and outer peace flow. I don't know a person, probably I don't even know someone here, who wouldn't say, I want the inner peace of God, and then I want that peace of my inner soul to flow out in the midst of my relationships. We all want that. We all desire to have what what this relationship with one another that's filled with this overflowing peace. And he's laying out for us, how do we get that? Well, one, you're going to have to make choices. That's certainly true. But the other side is those choices are fueled by different disciplines of the mind that fuel your affections for that person, which will ultimately make you choose joy, reasonableness, and experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. But because it's a discipline of the mind, thinking like all the practices and behaviors that we choose, uh, it, it starts there. It starts with us saying, how am I thinking about what I'm thinking about? You realize that's where most Christians get tripped up. If, if I ask them when, if they come in and they're challenged with some kind of venue, some kind of disruption in, in relationship, whether it's marriage, family, church member, friendships, and you imagine, and they'll say, they'll say all kinds of things, and it's how they're thinking about what they're thinking about. Now that is so important for us because the Bible gives us the answers for how to think well. 
and how to think in a way that will produce actions then that are from a genuine spirit. You don't want to just say, if we just left it at last week and said, uh, and I don't know about you, but I'm convicted in my own soul about just being a gentle and reasonable person, no matter what venue of relationship I have. Okay? If I just leave it there, and all I'm concerned about is being reasonable and gentle, and I don't pay attention to what the thinking that is going on in my heart, I could easily fall prey to saying, well, look, I'm so reasonable, you should really be pleased with me. You should, you should really enjoy the peace that you're affording because I'm a reasonable person. And the motivation of the heart, when it becomes offset or misaligned with your behavior, God is displeased with that. What God says is good is the motivation of, heart, of the heart that produces the kind of behavior that is lovely and pure in his mind. You can't divorce this reality of your heart, your mind, and your behavior because they all work together into this essence of what the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's not like he's saying to you this morning, hey, you, did you bring your, I'm so glad you brought your, your presence with us, but did you bring your soul? And did you bring your mind? It's not separate parts of you, it's who you are. It's the totality of your being which begins with how you think. And how you think is changed by the redeeming work of the Spirit of God who changes so that we can see what we could otherwise not see. It's very easy to not focus on thinking in a culture where it's so focused on emotionalism and pragmatism. One particular theologian uh, said this. I, I think this is a, a very important question. He says, the focus today on emotion and pragmatism and the importance of serious thinking about biblical truth is downplayed. People no longer ask, is it true, but does it work, and how will it make me feel? See, that's the culture that we live in today. A culture that's filled with, tell me if it works, and tell me how it's going to make me feel. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why so many churches, uh, why so many churches don't practice a level of biblical church discipline. Because I don't know of anybody who walks through a various component of that and then feels like, ooh, this is wonderful. But we do these things because God tells us to be pure in the body, to be disciplined in the mind, to pay attention to what he loves, to pay attention to what he hates. And the virtue list that, as we walk through it today, becomes incredibly critical because as we think about these things and this idea of think on these things, or as some translations will say, dwell on these things, give you and I as a Christian an opportunity to say, how we develop our meditation, our mindset of meditation, how we think about what we think about. Whatever it is that comes to your mind has to be things that are truthful. Why is this important? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, that's a work of the mind. In fact, the taking thoughts captive in your own heart becomes a discipline of self-counsel that you begin to say to yourself when an untrue statement or a sinful response comes to your mind. And you say, oh man, I'd really like to have some revenge. And although that's going to create disunity, I don't care. But all of a sudden now in the heart, if you're thinking rightly and you take that thought captive, you all of a sudden say, no, that is not the way that God would be glorified, and that is not the way a Christian should think about another Christian, or a way a, a Christian should behave against another Christian. We begin to calibrate our mindset by taking thoughts captive, and the virtue list of how to do that is laid out in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. So what we have this morning as we walk through this is seven different virtues. That means one thing, I've got to move fast. So that means you've got to listen fast. Now, here's number one. We have to think true thoughts. Now, at face value, we think, duh. Who's going to think false thoughts? But the reality is, is that Satan, the ultimate deceiver of all of us that leads into temptation, or even our own flesh, 
who desires to be led astray has wrong thinking that doesn't align itself with the truth. Now think about it just for a moment, why this is such an important Christian virtue. There was all kinds of Greek ethics and Greek virtue lists in the first century world. But, but Paul is saying, let me give you the, the Christian list of virtues, of the way to think, the way to meditate, and the way to think about how you're thinking. He said, first, it has to be true, as opposed to the reality of this, as opposed to something that is false. Now, here's the problem with uh, even every single one of us and, and, and people that have come from an unbelieving mindset, which that was all of us at one point or another because we were sinners by birth and we are sinners by choice. And Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God has come against all ungodliness to those who do what? Who suppress the truth. See, there is something that is at work in the world at large. Satan, the prince and power of the air, would love for you to think untrue things so that, so that you become a Christian that is absolutely worthless. See, the reality is, is that Satan knows this. If you're a believer here this morning, we can bank on Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We can go to the Gospels and say, you know what, Jesus said that, that all that the Father has put into my hand, no man can take out of my hand. But see, Satan can't take you out of the Father's hand. But what can he tempt you to do? He can tempt you to doubt and think untrue things, and if you believe that the things of the world are valuable, then what happens to your Christian life? If you begin to think untrue things, all of a sudden you become led astray in your own affections, which spill over into all of your actions and your choices. See, thinking true thoughts is a mark of a believer and, and embodies the Christian virtue that, by the way, truth is knowable. Now, living in an age which would be classified, as most philosophers would say, a postmodern age where all truth is somehow dictated by some subjective reality that you can have, you, truth is whatever you want it to be. And I would just challenge you, if you're sitting here saying to yourself, well, your truth is good for you and my truth is good for me and so-and-so's truth is good for them, you have got to come to grips with the truth of the only gospel that can save. Because there are things that are fundamental to the gospel itself, the saving work of Jesus Christ, which means you cannot be saved if you don't want to admit that you're a sinner. It's impossible because what would you say you're being saved from? Nothing. See, Satan would love to, to get you to continue to practice in your old life before you were a new creation the very things in your Christian walk where you doubt God and then all of a sudden it ends up derailing you in your Christian walk. Now he doesn't have to do much at that particular point because once you believe what you believe and you love what you love and if it's the world, well he's got you. Then it doesn't matter, unity doesn't matter. What matters is I want to get what I want. I believe that this will satisfy me, therefore I begin to love it, and therefore I begin to practice all of these things. True thoughts really challenge us. Things that are genuine versus things that are false. Well, what does this do for us? Knowing that we have the embodiment in the revelation of, of God in the scripture, it gives us an ethical system. We can't just say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about that. <laughs> no, the Bible does talk about everything. It doesn't talk about everything by explicit command, thou shalt not, but the Bible also talks about everything by implication of those commands, which we call wisdom. Wisdom isn't just the amassing for yourself, some intellectual reservoir as, as, a, as a believer, so you can say, look what I know. I think God is less concerned in some respects of what we know than what we practice, because what we practice reveals how much we believe what we believe. God wants us to be Christians who are deliberately thoughtful, that examine the very corners of our heart to say, is that thought truthful? There could be no more important 
application to this in the midst of conflict because I can tell you this, as I've, as I've mediated various different perspectives and difficulties in people's lives over the years, uh, what you begin to say is all kinds of things that will happen and it's all horizontal. Well, I can't believe they're doing this. They're such a mean person and I can't believe Christians are like that. They're a bunch of hypocrites and all this kind of things. It immediately goes to fighting against each other. They may even hear another Christian brother or sister say, hey, could you, did you know so-and-so says this? You know, I wish, I wish that our first natural disposition of the heart was like, I'm not believing that. But do you realize that it, it often isn't? It's often this, oh, tell me more. <laughs> like I had no idea. They were a fool. <laughs> See, we immediately allow our disposition of the heart to bleed over into the way we think about people, and, and oftentimes those thinkings, those thoughts are untrue. Why is this? We want to weigh heavy a little bit on this aspect of the truth. Why? Because if you trace this reality all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis, and we talk about the very first sin that ever occurred, we always think, okay, he... Eve was there, she took the fruit, she reached out her hand, she disobeyed God when God told her not to do it, and they both did it together, and there, there we are, we're now destitute to sin. But have you ever thought to yourself, how did she think in a way that would bring her to the conclusion that that was going to be a good idea? See, she didn't stop for a moment and think about how she was thinking about what God told them not to do. And then the first element that... that that the serpent brings into play is, did God really say? He's questioning the very authoritative word of God and therefore challenging whether what God said was actually true. He's doing this all the time for believers on an everyday basis. But he does it in different fashions, in different ways, and he understands humanity. It's not the devil made me do it. This person, this Satan, is a pro at, at leading Christians astray. He's been doing it for millennia. He knows how, how, how men are tempted. He knows how women are tempted. He knows how a body can be disrupted. If he can get us to doubt the very things of God, it swings open the door for our affections of our heart to be tainted and all of our behavior to be ill-motivated. He starts with doubt, and it will lead to all kinds of other fruits that come from a heart filled with doubt. Well, why are these true thoughts something that is so important? Because honesty, God is a God of truth. I mean, you remember this when he was at the woman, with the woman at the well? And he said, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. See, those two combined Christian elements become the very nature of a mind that is now devoted to God. It's an honesty before God and before others. If you don't have a mind that can think true thoughts, then how can you repent? Will you honestly go before the Lord and say, what you said is right and what I'm doing is wrong? See, your embracing and my embracing of this truth mindset means that I have to be an honest person. You know, I know plenty of people, by the way, who are Christians who have struggled with lying. And the discipline of the mind that says, I am going to think true thoughts directly intersects with this, with this ungodly kind of behavior that all of a sudden wreaks havoc on people's lives where they lie and lie and lie. And here's the worst part. This is the most despicable part, I think, when it comes to things that are lying, is that you begin to lie to yourself. And once you convince yourself that what you want to think is actually right instead of God's, you can say whatever you want, and you can do whatever you want. And no one has the right to be able to tell you otherwise. And the reality is, you may even live your Christian life in a way that you think, I've, I, I can just, I can fool people. But you will never fool God to the true honesty that is in your heart. We have to think true thoughts. Well, when, when do we have to employ these kind, this kind of thinking? Well, think about it just in the context of our book of Philippians for a moment. We could go a lot of other places, but I don't think we need to. You want to employ true thoughts, 
when Philippians 4 verses 4 through 7 says, don't be anxious. Why? Because anxious thoughts that lead to what if, what if, what if, what if, are those true? Could you imagine if all the what ifs you said were actually going to come true? Now there was something to be worrying about. But the reality is we're worrying about things that haven't even come true, and the discipline of the mind says, is that true? Has it happened? And is God in control? What do I think about his sovereignty? What do I think about his providence? Has he put me in together in this relationship? How, 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 all of these things that God has orchestrated, I have to begin to calibrate truth. It, it helps us deal with anxiety. It helps us fight against false teaching. Philippians chapter 3, beware of the dogs. Those who are preaching a different gospel. It helps us as we're thinking in, in unbelievers. We're saying, who are these unbelievers? Well, we can't just look at unbelieving people and say, can you, can you believe what they were doing? Like, well, what did you expect they were doing? I think what you should be shocked about if you see an unbeliever doing things that seem to be Christian. But so many Christians are shocked out of their mind because they see unbelievers sin and they turn on the TV and they see sin. They're like, what's going on? Well, the Bible has the response to that. This world has been cursed by sin but the reality is, is that we have a redeeming Savior who has come to bring life. It helps us when we think about disunity between brothers and sisters. You can't say, you know what, I just don't like them anymore. You know, in a larger church setting, you can't just say, well, we, hopefully I just won't see them anymore. Hopefully we, you know, I'm just going to go to a different small group. I'm going to sit in a different section. And I just won't deal with it. That doesn't so work, work very well if you're married. <laughs> Unless you want to sleep in a different room. But I'm not going to be that guy. Reality is I want unity and joy and peace that brings people together. We have to, we have to realize that true thoughts, I can't say if, 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 if one of my children or my wife or someone that's close to me say, they're out to get me. Even if they are out to get me. And even if they are more enemy-like to you, does the Bible not tell you how to treat them? Love your enemy. Do good to those who do evil against you. Bless those who curse you. Bring unity. Truth is important for self-righteousness. Why Paul explains in Philippians 3, there can't be this self-generated righteousness that comes from some traditional religiosity that people often hold on to. And more importantly, the truths of the doctrines of Jesus Christ and God the Father and the work of the Spirit of God. There's a reason why he says in Philippians 2, have this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I would venture to say that Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he is giving us the virtue list so that we can know how to have the mind of Christ. So we take every thought captive. Now Jesus is the perfect example who would be able to take a thought captive in the most horrifying, horrific, suffering moments like the Garden of Gethsemane and come out with whatever your will, not mine. That is the discipline of the mind. Apart from which we will never do things that are pleasing in God's sight, that are truly pure and holy. This becomes so important because we live in a world of virtual reality. I can't tell you how many adult people often get caught up in the virtual world of gaming. Them and their so-called avatar are not who they really are. They've made the person that they want to be instead of coming to grips with reality and who they really are. And they spent hours of time living in a virtual world that is totally untrue and not living with real people. And then we wonder, why is there conflict? They haven't seen people in a while. They haven't come out of their basement. <laughs> they don't know how to interact. We have to be a people who love to be together, who are so committed to a truth and honesty that we don't fall prey to living in some virtual reality of a world, a world of our own making, or this happens not only in gaming, this happens in, in novels and Christian fiction and all kinds of ways where people get sucked into fantasy. 
Oh, that world was so much better for me to live in in that chapter. And guess what? They do make Christian romanticism because they want to, they want to get you away from thinking. And you know what? Many times, this, was, this has always been sad to me over the years, is even Christian ladies will read various things and they'll read this contents of this really charming, debonair kind of guy and they're like, that's not my husband. And you think that doesn't happen. I have watched it train wreck marriages who have fantasized in an unreal world that ended up in adultery and divorce because it started with a book. Things that they allowed their mind to dwell on that were untrue. Don't think it can't happen to you. He moves from truth-filled thoughts and now, now that we laid the foundation, we gotta move, all right? True thoughts. When we think about these things, I don't know why it just went back, but you can change that back for me. He says, whatever is true and whatever is honorable, well, what does that mean? Well, this idea of being honorable is this idea of transcendent worth, something that's worth reverence, something that you see and you go, wow, now that is holy, that is pure, that is something good. This idea of honorable thoughts is the very word that is used in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, to describe deacons, men who are dignified. And, and wives of deacons, and it's talking about in 1 Timothy 3, 11, women who are dignified. And then you have in Titus chapter 2, older men who are dignified. What are they saying? People whose minds are so filled with the truth that when the life is coming out of them and behavior is coming out of them, that you see something that, that is supposed to stand in awe. They're like, that didn't come from them. See, that's the way Christians, their thinking affects their behavior in a way that fuels and encourages other people. That we all of a sudden look and say, how did you do that? I want to do that. I want to live godly. I want to think rightly. I want to love the right things. How'd you do that? And we take them back to the way to think so that as we, as we look at what is honorable, this transcendent worth, well, why is that so important? Because God is the one who designs what is transcendently worthy, things that are holy, things, people who are dignified, the idea of they're worthy of honor and of respect. That's the, the sense of the word in 1 Timothy for both older men, deacons, and wives of deacons there. That you would look at their wife and say, now that is respectable. That is a respectable young man. That is a respectable young woman. And we ought to live with thoughts in our mind that are worthy of the reverence that only God designs and defines. He defines what is, was awe-inspiring. He says what is good. He says what is holy. Well, this means that we can't be about earthly thoughts, does it? This exactly means that we can't be thinking uh, what, what is dishonorable. Well, we could think on the, the trivial or the temporal things, the, the, the common, the earthly things, when we should be thinking on the heavenly things. We should be thinking about, this should impact what is honorable, even when we look at an unbeliever that you work with and you work side by side with, even at your workplace. You can't look at them and say, you shouldn't be saying to yourself, or a student that's by you that you're going to meet coming up in school, uh, or someone that you meet at the gas station, or the waitress or the waiter that's serving you, you shouldn't say, you, you sh if you find out they're an unbeliever, it's like, oh, those wicked unbelievers. Your mind should be calibrated by this reality. That person, whether believer or unbeliever, is the image bearer of the living God. They are worthy of, of, of respect from us and care for their soul because God designed who they are. God determines the worth and value of people. He moves on and says, think things that are true, things, think the honorable kinds of thoughts. Then he moves on and says, I want you to think just thoughts. And what does that mean? Well, this is the word that's translated right or righteous. So when we say, I want to think about things that are righteous, well, what he's trying to convey is this reality of things that conform to justice. Things that are conformity to God's law, God's moral system. See, as you think about 
uh, as, as you think as a Christian, you have to say, is this what God says is right? See, the word in itself, the idea that we come up with justice, that, that is translated here just, that other translations will talk about as right, really predefines the reality that someone determined what was right and someone determined what was wrong. See, if, if all of it, this is, the, this is really the big challenge of the culture that we live in, is that cult, they want to explain that culture somehow dictates morality, so that as cultural situations change, then therefore morality should change as well. Because the quantity of people who think whatever they think should then validate what should be the ongoing thinking of the day. So the more people, another way to say it, the more people who think it, the more it must be true. Now, thank God that we have the Bible. But I'll tell you what, people aren't lined up at doors around the country at every church saying, hey, could you tell me the right moral system to live by? But Christians should. Christians should discipline their mind and, and calibrate it in such a way that you say, there is a right from wrong. That means it shouldn't shock you when all of a sudden some pastor gets up and says, and, and talks about things of the cultural world and says, you know what? When they all of a sudden come out with homosexual marriages and we stand up and we say, that's wrong. That is not consistent with God's moral standards. It is not what is right. Or when we celebrate because of decisions like Roe v. Wade that has now just been overturned and we say, this is right. When all of a sudden we begin to shy away from what God says is right, we become Christians who then become tolerant to the culture in a way that we're afraid to say anything because we're afraid to hurt somebody's feelings. Now, don't hear what, don't say, I'm, pastor told me to go hurt people's feelings. The point is be truthful, but speaking the truth with love. You know, that's possible to do. I just think it's so often uh, unseen that people just assume that I can't speak the truth and do it in a loving way. They're either heavy on the love and the truth is absent or they're heavy on the truth without the love. And there's a balance between these two that come together and say, I care about you so much. I don't want you to be led astray. I want you to hear the truth. I want you to see what God says is right and just. Why? Because I don't define that. You don't get to define that. Our culture doesn't get to define that. God does. And as long as we as Christians will stay focused on that, saying what God says is right, then we know that we can live in unity and peace. I'll tell you what we don't want. We don't want to be saying what the world says and then to be at animosity with God. There is no peace in your inner soul for that, and there will no, be no peace that flows out of that if all of a sudden we begin to agree with the world's system. Which is exactly why Paul, in a different passage in Colossians 3, says these things. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christian, the discipline of the mind is worth it because it is the mind, your thoughts, every thought, deed, and action that you will stand accountable before the righteous king of heaven, Jesus Christ. One day, you will stand alone for how you thought about what you're thinking about and who you're thinking about and why you're thinking about it. All things will be laid open and bare before the eyes of God. And he will use the word of God to bring that to bear to help us see more clearly the holiness of God. He wants us to think just thoughts. This becomes so important because the reality is, is if you make a, uh, a discipline of your mind to take more of Fox News, CNN, or any other news venue more than you do the Bible, and you see all the injustice of the world, what happens if that is the constant diet of your mind? I see it at various times. People become massively cynical. Now the reality is we can say, now we want to be able to say, here's what's true, here's what's not. What we want to do is we want to be really careful because we, we should be able to hear things, and we can do that. We can hear things, but then discern how it impacts us in our mind. 
so that we then begin to say, you know what, here's what's true, here's what's right. And there are a lot of wrong things, and all, the rot along, a lot of things need to be exposed. But we need to be careful how it impacts us in our day-to-day walk so that we have just thoughts, because otherwise, if of all the injustices that are there, we can, we can fall prey to unrighteous anger, which is often the emotional that fuels injustices. I would want you to guard yourself to make sure that you're being righteously angry at things that you should be righteously angry about. There's no problem with that. But if all of a sudden righteousness quickly moves into unrighteousness, then we have a problem. And we can realize that maybe I didn't discipline my mind. So all I would say is just be careful. I'm not saying don't do any of those things or don't watch those things. I'm saying just be careful as you diet and discipline your mind to think about what you're thinking about and what is coming into your mind. Think pure thoughts. These are thoughts that we would describe as untainted by evil. We want things that are holy and morally clean and undefiled. Oh, this is very difficult in a world that's filled with all kinds of sensuality. Because if we're not careful to discipline our mind, all of a sudden you can begin to be desensitized to the immorality and sensuality of the world. And all of a sudden, it's, 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 it's so inundated on billboards and TVs and, 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 and commercials that all of a sudden, we think, what just happened? You know, that's the, that's the idea of the culture. It just put a little bit so often, every so often in things, and then it just becomes normal. And then we go, oh, well, we've just always seen it that way. For the Christian, we have to, we have to see things and say, that's pure, that's unpure. This is tainted with sin, this is not tainted with sin. This, this, by the way, applicationally means that the thinking of the mind that has to be pure has to be free from a mind that's deliberately set on, on, on visiting sensual sites, looking at things you shouldn't look at, l- allowing your mind to be meditating on things that should never be there. Yes, I know in a world and a culture that we live in that is, that is bombarded with sensuality on every turn and every device you have access beyond measure. And if your mind is not pure and it's not focused on truth and what's honorable and right and what's just, you will easily fall prey to impurities of the mind. We have to be free from that. And it's possible that you can have victory and have a pure mind in the eyes of God. But it's more than just staying free from pornography. It's, it's more than that. It's being, having a heart that's motivated that, of pure things. This spills over into all kinds of different areas, doesn't it? It's not, just, it's not just how I think. It's also what I do and what I wear. You realize that such a sensual culture that we have has been so inundated that the idea of modesty has been downplayed to such a degree that we're almost afraid to define what's modest? <laughs> We have to be careful because the purity of the mind has to be guarded. And you don't want to be an individual all of a sudden that says, you know what, Uh, I don't care how people are thinking about me, those wicked men. How dare they think those thoughts? The reality is is that there are times where people even, uh, there's dress that elicits very impure kind of thinking. Moms and dads have to help their children understand what is pure and holy, even all the way down to what you wear. Because we guard our minds at every level, and to simply say what I wear doesn't matter, or that somehow what I wear doesn't somehow reflect some thought process of the heart, is not the way the Bible describes the importance of this kind of thinking. We have to be pure in heart and pure in mind and pure in what comes out. We ought ought not to be offended when our desire is to be holy and pure people. None of us want anyone to stumble and fall. He says, move from that, these pure thoughts, to thoughts that are lovely. This idea of lovely, uh, this is the only time that it's used in the New Testament, and Paul uses it here. And it's to describe these things that are agreeable, that there's this general sense that someone could say, uh, believer or unbeliever, uh, this is lovely. Well, what are things that are lovely? Well, things that are people that are gracious, people that are kind. You know, even the world recognizes kindness at some level. 
And when we see it, we should say, anything that's lovely. Well, I would also extend that theologically. It's not just lovely how we think horizontally, but it's what God says is lovely. See, God always reserves the right to define what's lovely. And in this world, he says, all that's good, all that's gracious, all that's loving, all that's kind, good speech, unity, joy, all these focuses of the mind help us please our Heavenly Father. You should be asking yourself, if you're, if you're in a relationship where you're wanting, another, you're wanting a relationship with another guy or a girl, and you should be saying to yourself, I want to find out how they think about what they think about. If you just stay on the outside and go, I like how they look, or I like how they behave, or they're so funny, you are missing whether or not they have a disciplined mind that may show up later on. Talk about the things that matter, the things of the mind, things that are pure. How are you developing your Christian maturity? What does your love for the Lord look like? Who keeps you accountable? What kind of righteous person are you? How do you go through these, these Christian virtues? These ought to be the, the, the lists of things that we say, is this a good guy or a good girl? It's in God's standards in the way that they think. We've got to help our children understand God's, uh, God's specific standards of the way uh, people that they're interested in and helping them learn. How do they think about what God says? Things that are lovely, things that are holy. Specific reference to the idea of attitude. And you see people have a good attitude, even though in the midst of opposition, we say, wow, that is really good. That is really lovely that they can see beyond their suffering and in a way that will generate that they suffer in a way that's pleasing to God. And he says this. He finishes up, he says, thoughts that are lovely and thoughts that are commendable thoughts and thoughts that, uh, number seven, of excellent and praiseworthy thoughts. The word for lovely, this is the only time that it's used here. The word for commendable is the only time that is, it, this word is used here. And it's really trying to emphasize this same reality. Whatever God says is good. It's this James 3 mentality. All good and perfect gifts come from above, from the Father of lights, which there is no changing. All things that are good and kind and attractive come from this God. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list so that somehow we go, you know what, uh, if there's something I missed, <laughs> and I think he's kind of saying, I couldn't put them all down. I think he's saying, anything that's commendable, anything that's excellent and praiseworthy, think on these things. Dwell on them. I would challenge you this morning as you, as you look into your own life, and as we come to the end and we think, we're, we're thinking commendable thoughts, we're trying to think excellent and praiseworthy thoughts, and he ends with this. What have you have learned, which is the idea of you've received some kind of instruction, what you have received, you've received the revelation that I've given to you by Jesus Christ, what you've heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice the two commands in the text are this. Think on these things, practice these things. Think on these things, practice these things. Because if you, if you don't think on these things, you're not going to practice these things. If you try to practice these things without the right thinking, you're going to do all the right things for all the wrong reason, and God's just going to be, you're still not going to be honorable in God's eyes. If you do the right things for the right reasons, what do you get? The peace of God that passes all understanding. It's an inner peace that through a disciplined mind gives you a peace in your heart that will flow to a desire of peace in your relationships. As you think about how you're thinking, I would challenge you to take this list. And where is it that you struggle on this list and say, is it true thoughts that I struggle with? Is it just thoughts that I struggle with? And where, do I where am I challenged with them? Are they in the midst of my personal relationships? Is it in my marriage? Is it in my family? Is it in my church membership or my church relationships? Is it my work or is it my hobbies? Am I in conflict with somebody? And look at this list and say, am I thinking about what I'm thinking about in a God-honoring way so that when I get done thinking about them, I can, I can leave them before the Lord and say, that 
was pleasing in your sight. And I take every thought captive and submit it to the obedience of Christ. And I, and I allow myself to reverence God who's designed all these spiritual disciplines in a way that when I can stand before him, he'll say, that's how you're supposed to think. You are thinking like my son, Jesus Christ. Practice it. What kind of thoughts do you need to work on? What kind of thoughts do you let your mind dwell on on a day-to-day basis? Are you applying these in the conflict resolution? Take Take every thought captive, Christian, because how well you are a Christian is determined off most likely by the discipline of your mind. If you begin to say, this is what God says is right, it will overflow into what you love, which will overflow into what you do. And you will be a Christian who is pleasing God's sight, not just on a behavioral level, but on a heart level, which is why David said in Psalm 51, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he got right to the point, and he said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He longed to be pure in heart. And guess what? If you're there and you're stuck in, in something, recall to your mind 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and do what? To cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Yes, we get tripped up. Yes, we struggle at times. Every single one of us do. But we have the call and the pleading of the Father to say, come to me and I will forgive you. We can offer our wrong thinking and repent of it and go back and say, Lord, I'm going to change the way I'm thinking to a more righteous, pure, holy, just, commendable, and praiseworthy thoughts. And as you do that, it will be a way that you can serve and please the Father in heaven where he will be glorified with the way that you think. And that is the call to Christians. If we do that, I can only imagine what kind of joy and unity we're going to experience both in our inner peace and the outer peace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a list like this. In fact, the discipline of the mind that, and the busyness that goes on often in our mind, we often don't take enough time to evaluate how we're thinking about what we're thinking about. The way we're thinking about people, the way we're thinking about life in general and what's happened and suffering and all of these things, and we want to submit them and take them captive and have, a, have the mind of Christ. Oh, but Lord, we need your help. Or because this is not something we can fight on our own. We, we need your truth to permeate our souls so that as we hide God's word in our heart, like Psalm 119.11 says, that we won't sin against you. That our goal would be to honor and glorify your name as we take our thoughts captive and discipline our mind. Lord, we're going to need to do that the rest of today. We're going to need to do that this week if you give us that opportunity. Father, help us as we go about this task of of recalibrating our mind as new creatures in Christ, that our thoughts and our minds would be honorable in your sight. In your name we pray.